Thank you for tuning into Stepping Stones of Faith. Stepping Stones of Faith is a ministry of Claytonville United Brethren Church. Our service times are as follows. Sunday morning Sunday school starts at 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship starts at 10.30 a.m. If you would like to join us for any of these services, our address is 106 Elizabeth Street, Claytonville, Illinois, 60926. We hope to see you this morning. Well, good morning. We are going to go through some New Testament teaching today. Matthew 21. Today is the, of course, Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus entered in Jerusalem on the donkey. And they laid palm branches out at the donkey's feet saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we will see throughout the rest of the week and Friday night what happened after that. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 today. We're going to go through about 11 verses. We're going to look at it and dissect it a little bit. Talk about it. Matthew 21, when you're there, say amen. Oh, sorry. 853. That's the page number. 853 in the Red Bible. Starting with verse 1, he says, it says, When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go over into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied to, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of these. of these, And he will send them immediately. All this was done to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and sitting on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. We're going to dissect this a little bit. When, G, when, when they drew, new, drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus knew the religious leaders were going to arrest him and condemn him and mock him and scourge him and deliver him to the Romans for crucifixion. Find that in Matthew 20, 19. Verse 19, yet he had the courage to not enter Jerusalem, but to enter in, a, in as public a way as possible. So he now is getting to the position where he is now proclaiming his position in God. He is now pro proclaiming to the world he is the Messiah, and he's doing it in a public way. This contrasts his previous pattern of suppressing publicity. Now remember, he has had situations where he's healed people and said, don't tell anybody I've done this. Don't tell anybody I've healed you. Just go show yourself the priest. Don't say anything. And what did they do? They didn't listen. 
They told everybody, even though he tried to suppress the publicity. Now he's being very open. And he's saying, I'm going to go in proclaiming myself as the Messiah, showing them by my actions that I am fulfilling this prophet, the prophecy. Now, things are becoming very different. He is no longer just there quietly proclaiming or quietly saying, talking parables. He is now giving a understanding that he is coming. He is the Messiah. He's the one that they've been waiting for. If Jesus had not de deliberately suppressed the popular enthusiasm over him and his credentials as Messiah, if Jesus had wanted it, this would have happened long ago and many times. You see, there was a plan. There was a reason. There was a, a, a way of things that Jesus, the way of, there was a way of steps that had to occur for this to be the way it was supposed to be through the prophecy. Jesus could not have chosen a more dramatic moment. It was into a city surging with people keyed up with religious expectations that he came. Now, what were they thinking? The Messiah. They were saying, he was proclaiming, I'm the Messiah. What was their understanding of the Messiah? He was going to deliver them from their oppressors. So what are they thinking? They're thinking military action. Let's go overthrow Rome and get, get, get our land back, get our, get our uh, prestige back, get our place in society back. But that is not what happened. That is not what his intentions were. That is why we find later this week on Friday, we will talk about it, how the same people who was cheering him on only six days later, five days later, were saying, crucify him. Crucify him. Because he was viewed as a false prophet. And in the Old Testament, the judgment for the false prophets was death. And so they were putting him to death because he was, to them, a false prophet. The applause in the crowds were not manipulated. They would have occurred in any case. But the ride on a colt, because it was planned, could only be an acted, an acted parable, a deliberate act of self-disclosure. Secrecy was being lifted. He no longer was being secret. He was out there saying, this is who I am. I am the one. And we know also in the temple, or in the synagogue, when he read, read from the book of Isaiah, he was proclaiming that he was the son of man. He was the son of God. That was the beginning You will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Jesus would ride upon the younger of these animals, the colt. He told the disciples how they would find these animals and instructed them to bring both animals. The Hebrew text of Zechariah 9 mentions one animal, not two if we assume that Matthew understood Hebrew, the full quotation affirms that Jesus rode on a colt, 
colt, not its mother. Mark and Luke say the animal was so young that it had never been ridden. In the midst then the, of the excitement, excited crowd, a unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature. Now, that's interesting. Never had been ridden before. You ever seen horses being broke? Well, how do they act when they've never been ridden before? Donkeys can act the same way, or they can just not move. Sometimes they just don't move. You can't get them to move. Sometimes they kick and they do all kinds of stuff, but sometimes they just don't move. But yet, here, this cold, under the Messiah, was doing what it was supposed to do, bringing the Messiah into Jerusalem. Mark tells us that the colt had never been ridden in Mark 11, 2. So that it would be, be all, only prudent to bring its, its mother as well, to reassure it among, along, among the noisy crowd. That's why, as I was doing research, I, under, I found that out. This was from a commentator, last name of France. The mother had to be brought so to keep the colt calm. Although, it could, although Jesus kept it calm, but it was showing that the colt could be kept calm with the, with the mother at, 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 at its side. Hath need of them, not for any weariness, he who had traveled on foot from Galilee to Bethany could have gone the other, other two miles, but that he might enter into Jerusalem as he prophesied of him, Zechariah 9, 9. That's a commentator from a commentator named Poole. Jesus went right into Jerusalem. He could have gone around, but he went right in the middle. Charles Spurgeon adds this, what a singular conjunction of words is here, the Lord and hath need. Jesus, without laying aside his sovereignty, had, had taken a nature full of needs, yet being in need, he was, he was still the Lord and could command his subjects and requisition their property. He was in need. He came to a world in need. Think about that for a moment. <clears throat> he came to a world in need. What is our greatest need? Our greatest need is salvation. Our greatest need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So he came in as a, to a world in need and in himself being in need of a cult, he was able then to still command his subjects to meet his need because he's the Lord. Because he's the Lord. And I, we've been watching this TV show called The Chosen. Great, great TV series if you ever come across it. But it's about the life of Jesus and his ministry. <clears throat> and in that show, it's, it's depicted, although I don't know how accurate it is, it's depicted that when Jesus sends out the two by two, we know in Scripture he commands them to not 
bring anything with them. Don't bring money. Don't bring a change of clothes. Don't bring anything with you. Just, just wait for and take what is given to you. Let the ministry meet your need, basically. And so in that, he is giving his disciples the ability to, quote-unquote, command the subjects to meet their need. Thereby, he is giving them authority of the Lord to have their needs met. It says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Here, Jesus deliberately worked to fulfill prophecy, especially the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks, which many feel Jesus fulfilled to the exact day on his triumphal entry. That's found in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It is possible that Matthew presents these verses as having been spoken by Jesus. So, the Bible says that Jesus fulfilled every prophecy, every jot and tittle of prophecy. And he was fulfilling prophecy because it was, in, it was to show that he was the Messiah. He was the one they were waiting for. He was the one that they were waiting for to come and be their deliverer. They were looking at things like Moses was a deliverer. What did he do? He brought them out of Egypt and they slew the Pharaoh and his army. He was looking to someone like Joshua who brought down the walls of Jericho and, and crippled their aggressors. They were looking for those kind. But that's not who Jesus was. Your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. Jesus came to Jerusalem in humility yet with appropriate dignity. Instead of coming on a horse as a conquering general, that's what they were expecting, by the way, he came on a colt as was customary for royalty. He came to Jerusalem as the prince of peace. If you think about those two animals, a steed or a, or a horse or a, or, you know, a stallion, this big strong horse commanding the strength of the rider, commanding the strength of the army, that's what they were expecting. Jesus came on a colt, a very weak and very lowly animal, not to bring, um, not to bring upheaval but to bring peace. Donkeys were of old beasts that great persons used to ride on. Judges 10.4, Judges 12.14. But after Solomon's time, the Jews got a breed of horses. So as only poor people rode upon donkeys, mostly reserved for burdens. So what is that saying to us? Jesus was lowly, right? He didn't have a place to lay his head. And the burden of his life was thrust upon him. The burden of our sin was thrust upon him. Therefore, he was riding this colt, this donkey's colt. 
because it was a burden for him to, to carry our sin. It was a burden. Therefore, for those with eyes to see, Jesus was not only proclaiming his Messiahship and his fulfillment of Scripture, but showing the kind of peace-loving approach he was now making to the city. He was not making, he was not bringing turmoil. He was bringing peace. But not the kind of peace they were thinking. Peace within ourselves. Peace within our hearts. That's the kind of peace. And we know that when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is a peace that overcomes our spirit. There is a peace that overcomes our mind, our body. He was bringing that kind of peace. And if we have a peace in our spirit and a peace within our body and our heart, that kind of peace then envelops the rest of the, of the area where you're at. If I have peace and Jim has peace and, and, and Wayne and Brenda and Amy and Ralph and, and Ruth, we all have peace in our life. When we're together, that peace exudes out of us. And so he was bringing peace, actual peace, peace within them and if they would have accepted that peace it would have brought about a peace in the city a peace in the nation it wouldn't have been a very horrific thing it would have been peaceful this entry into Jerusalem has been termed the triumph of Christ it was indeed the triumph of humility over pride and worldly grandeur over poverty, over affluence, and of meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. He was saying, put aside all of that. Put aside your affluence. Put aside your rage and malice. Put aside your pride. Put aside all of those things and have peace within yourselves if they would have all realized that and been, and gave their lives to the lord they would have been it would have been a peaceful place even in their deaths they would have had peace should they have to fight or should they have been slaughtered they would have had peace but that's not what they were looking for is that what we desire Peace. I desire peace in my life. I desire solace. I desire solitude. I desire those things. Don't we all desire those things in Christ? And if we desire those things, then we have peace. But if we desire other things like malice and rage and bitterness and anger, We'll never have true peace. And that's what he was saying here. Verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their garments on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their garments on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that followed him cried out, Hosanna 
to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the entire city was moved, saying, Who is he? The crowd said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Could you imagine their, their being ecstatic, their excitement? Because what they want is not necessarily a person to bring inner peace, but to bring outer peace, outer victory over their oppressor. Outer victory over their oppressor. That's what they wanted. Jesus brought them, was trying to bring them victory over the true oppressor, the enemy who oppresses our spirit, who oppresses our soul, who oppresses our actions and the way we think. They laid their, laid their clothes on them, spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. All this was done to honor Jesus as a great triumphal person coming into Jerusalem in the season of Passover. The commentary Wiseman says of the spreading out of the garments for Jehu in 2 Kings 9.13, the act of spreading out the garment was one of recognition, loyalty, and promise of support. So they were supporting him in this action. And I understand, it's very interesting how they were supporting his action as long as it aligned with their agenda. Because we'll see later on throughout the week what happens. But they're supporting him as long as it fits their agenda. As long as it goes along the narrative of what they want to happen, they will support Jesus of Nazareth. Not even thinking about what the prophecy says in Daniel. They hadn't even thinking about Daniel. They weren't even thinking about Daniel. They were thinking about victory. They missed the point. They missed the whole point. Some people come to Jesus even today because they want to get out of their situations. They want to get out of the hard place they put themselves in. And sometimes Jesus will walk through that situation with you. He won't deliver you from every situation, but he'll walk with you through situations. And sometimes that's not what they want. Sometimes as some people have a family member or a friend who is ill and possibly going to die. And so then while they come to Jesus because they want Jesus to keep them alive. So they come to Jesus and they follow Jesus and they pray and they read the Bible. And then if God forbid God not heal them on this side, but choose to heal them on the other side and they go on to be in eternity... And then they get angry and they say, well, God doesn't really hear me. God didn't hear what I said. God doesn't love me. Therefore, I am going to then turn my back on Jesus Christ. That is exactly what happened here. Their agenda was that Jesus was going to come in. He was going to set up an army in his kingdom in Jerusalem. And he was going to conquer Rome. 
And he was going to send them packing out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. That's what their expectation was. That was not the plan of God. That was not the plan of Jesus. And therefore, then, because they, he didn't fulfill their plan, they turned their back on him. Carrying palm and other branches was an emblemical of victory and success. So here again, he's going to bring victory. He's going to get rid of Rome. He's going to conquer Rome and set up his kingdom, and we're going to live free again. It's not what happened. Not in the way they wanted on the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, the Jews entered the citadel with shouts of jubilation, waving, waving of palm branches, the music of harps, the cymbals, the lyres, and the singing of hymns and canticles because a great enemy of Israel had been destroyed. Now, that's what they thought. Boy, he's going to destroy the oppressor, Rome. He's going to put them in their place. He's going to send them packing. He didn't come to destroy Rome. He came to destroy the thing within us, which is self, which is pride, which is indignation, which is bitterness, which is all those things. He came to destroy those things in us. Not Rome. Because if you take away if you take away the outside oppressor, what changes changes us? What changes us then? Does it change us? Does it change me? It didn't change them. It wouldn't have changed them. They just would have gotten, as Jesus said in the Gospels, they followed him for their, so their bellies could be full. Immediate gratification. They weren't looking for salvation. They were looking for outward victory. It wouldn't have changed them. Wouldn't have changed their hearts. Wouldn't have changed their souls and their spirits. In one way, the crowd was glorious. It is a mark of Christ's presence when the church becomes enthusiastic. We sometimes hear complaints about revivals being too exciting. Perhaps the censure is deserved, but I would like to see a little of, of the fault. This age does not generally sin in the direction of being too excited concerning divine things. We have erred so long on the other side that perhaps a little excess in the direction of fervor might not be the worst of all calamities. At any rate, I would not fear to try it, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon has a lot to say on this portion of Scripture. We're not going to get into my thoughts on revival, but I will say that revival is not a scheduled event. Revival is not something that you can say, come to our church on June such and such for a weekend of a revival. That is not how revival takes place. Revival starts 
here in the heart and it spews out of us and it's contagious to those around us and people come to see and take part in the revival. It's not come to our church June such and such for a weekend of revival. That is not true revival. Spurgeon continues. In another way, this crowd was ridiculous. In worldly eyes, why, if Pilate himself had heard about it, he would have said, ah, there is nothing much to fear from that. There is no fear that that man will ever upset Caesar. There is no fear that he will ever overturn an army. Where are the swords? There is not a sword among them. They have no cries that sound like rebellion. Their songs are only some religious verses taken out of the Psalms. Oh, see, he, the whole thing, is contemptible and ridiculous. Now, that is not the reason Jesus came. We've said that many times here. He did not come to have a military action. So it wouldn't have been a threat for Pilate that Jesus was coming in. It wouldn't have been a military threat. He was turning the world upside down with his actions. And the disciples, after the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, turned the world upside down. And what happened to them? Were they victorious? Only one person in the, in the, the, the original 12 was alive to live in old age, and that was John. John was exiled to the, isle, to the island of Patmos for his belief in Jesus. But all the others were martyred, with the exception of Judas. He killed himself. But all the others were martyred for their belief in Christ. Was that victory? Some would say it wasn't. But was it? I would say so. What did Paul say? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that was their victory. In outward eyes and outward thoughts, they failed. Some commentators even have cited other people, and I've heard, read other people say that Jesus failed when he was crucified on the cross. He did not fail. That was the plan. He was not there to bring a military action. So he did not fail. He still took our sin. He still blotted out the sin of us by taking it upon himself. So there is no failure there. No failure whatsoever. Hosanna to the son of David. This was open messianic adoration of Jesus. They took to Jesus for salvation. Hosanna means to save now. And was addressed to the kings as in 2 Samuel 14.4 and 2 Kings 6.26. They openly give Jesus the titles appropriate for the Messiah, son of David, he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
they appropriately give him the names. But if you look at all the other kings, they were military kings. David was a military king. Saul was a military king. They all were military kings. So therefore, they were looking to Jesus for the same reason. Jesus received and indeed encouraged his worship, this worship. Again, this was because this is the day the Lord has made, Psalm 118, 24. The day when the Messiah came as Savior to Jerusalem in fulfillment of David, Daniel's prophecy. Hosanna trans, transliterates the Hebrew expression that originally was a cry for help. Save. Save. They were wanting salvation. But physical salvation, not spiritual and eternal salvation. In time it became an inv invocation of blessing and even an acclamation. The people praised God in the highest heavens of sending the Messiah and if Hosanna re retains some of its original force, also cry to him for deliverance. Essentially, it is a people's cry for deliverance and for help in the day of their trouble. It is an oppressed people's cry to their Savior and their King. A cry of salvation. Physical salvation. We are to cry as a people to God for a spiritual salvation. I've been told many times and read many times that Jesus Christ saves us from the inside out. He cleanses from sin. He doesn't cover the sin. It's from the inside out. Vox populi, vox die. They used to say, but the saying is false. The voice of the people may seem to be the voice of God when they shout Hosanna in the highest. But whose voice is it when they, they yell out, crucify him, crucify him? Charles Spurgeon. The same voice, right? Same voices. Hosanna, Hosanna on Sunday. And then by Friday, crucify him. Crucify him. He didn't do what we wanted. So crucify him. Put him to death. When he had come in Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Jesus also showed that he wasn't afraid of chief, of chief priests and Pharisees. He knew they were plotting to kill him, yet he came openly to the city as Messiah. He knew what was going on. He knew the plan. When he went to Jerusalem, the Bible says in the King James Version that he set his face like flint and went into Jerusalem. That means he, he didn't waver. He was, he was very set in his ways to do that. He could have went any which way he wanted. He was also human, but he was also God. And he could have chosen 
to not go to Jerusalem. But the Bible says he, he set his face like flint and went into Jerusalem. He knew. He knew exactly what his de destiny was, if you want to use that word. He knew what his future would hold. When the Magi came looking for the king of the Jews, all Jerusalem was troubled, Matthew 2, 3. Now when the king arrives, all the city is stirred. The city is moved with excitement. The city is moved with emotion that finally their king has emerged. Finally, he has come. And yet those same voices, crucify him. He didn't do what we wanted. We're still under oppression to Rome. Crucify him. How strange is it that these same people should about five days after change their hosannas to away with him, crucify him, crucify him. How fickle is the multitude? How fickle are we as a people? How fickle are we? How many times have we wanted something, material or otherwise, because we think it'll do what we want it to do, and then it doesn't. And then we don't like it anymore. We don't want it anymore. We want to go for something else that might help us out better than this one did. How many times? We are a fickle people. We are human people that are fickle. Even when they get rid, get right, there is a, but little hope that they will continue, continue so long. It was here before he entered the city that he looked over the city and wept, knowing the Jerusalem that would come upon, the judgment that would come upon Jerusalem. Jesus knew the judgment. He knew they would not follow him. Now, me as a human being, I'm not Jesus, but me as a human being, if I knew somebody was going to be dissident, hurtful, revengeful, I wouldn't give them the time of day. If I knew my actions wouldn't cause them to turn or wouldn't cause them to change, I wouldn't give them the time of day. But see, I'm an imperfect human. Jesus was perfect. He saw the long game. He saw the future. He knew what his death and his resurrection would do in the future. Maybe not in the moment, but in the future. Our Lord loves his people to be glad. His tears he kept to himself as he wept over Jerusalem. But the gladness he scattered all around 
so that even the boys and girls in the streets of Jerusalem made the temple courts to ring with their merry feet and gladsome songs. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to have gladness in our midst and in our minds and in our hearts. That's what he wants. He was crying because he knew what he had to do and he knew that they would not follow and their gladness would be turned to resentment and bitterness because he didn't do what they wanted. This Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee, this continues the earlier identification of Jesus with Nazareth in Matthew 2.23. It would sound strange to many, especially to the religious establishment, that a prophet would come from the obscure and unnoted city of Nazareth. Remember in the scriptures, is, is, is there anything that good that comes from Nazareth? Nazareth was obscure. Wasn't prominent. Is there anything good that comes from that? When our Lord grants revivals to his church, the congregations and the multitude outside begin to ask, where, wherefore this stir? What means all this? What does all this mean? Who is this Christ? And what is his salvation? This spirit of inquiry and eminently desirable, it is just now a matter, of, a matter to be sought for by importunate prayer. Charles Spurgeon. Christ brings us a stir within ourselves. He rides into our lives that, that Savior, just like he did in Jerusalem. We're going through hard times. We seek Jesus and he rides in as a humble and meek Savior. Not to conquer our inward and outward fears outwardly, but to bring peace. And in that peace brings about safety. And that in itself is a conquering thing. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. But it started with this. Our lives today parallel this. There are days, I'm sure, that we can think, well, I'm so glad that I have Jesus in my heart. I'm so glad that he's with me. And I'm sure there are days when we think he's not doing what I want. He's not being, he's not answering my prayer the way I want him to. And we struggle with the possibility of turning away. But I'm here to tell you that we are to continue on in this path 
of the Savior, following in his footsteps. We have all had that in our lives. And we wonder, what is the plan of Jesus in this? What is his plan? Should I follow or should I turn away? I'm urging you to follow and not turn away. I'm urging you to walk with him side by side and in some cases allow him to carry you through troubled times. He's there. He's walking with you. The Savior, maybe not one you're looking for in the moment, but he'll see it through. He will walk with you. He will see you through. Amen. He will walk with you. So what is our assignment for this week? This week is a busy week for Jesus. Not this week, this week, but the week we're coming upon. Was a busy week for Jesus. Our assignment this week is to get ourselves closer to Jesus Christ as we continue on to Easter Sunday. As we continue on. Identify the things in our lives, mine included, where we need to turn to Him more and relinquish our lives to Him more. That is what is important. He will meet our need. And he has the greatest idea of what our need is. Amen. We might think it's something other than he thinks. But in his sovereign wisdom, he will meet our need. Amen. Let's go before the Lord. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Help us, Lord, to see you as that suffering servant who came in on the foal of a donkey, not to upset the apple cart with a military action, but to bring peace into the lives of those you touch. Help us to be granted peace and minister to us by your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you. We give you praise. We pray that you would help us to not only pray this way, but to also submit our lives to you fully. And Lord, we thank you for that. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Stepping Stones of Faith. I pray that you find value in this content. You can also find an audio podcast of this program on all the major podcasting platforms. Just type Stepping Stones of Faith into the podcast search bar. Once again, I'm Pastor Josh. Thank you for joining me today.